All right, welcome everybody. I'm joined by Mike O'Connor of The Athletic. How you doing, buddy? We got some stuff to talk about. We do, man. Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Didn't have much of a Saturday, but uh, <laughs> no, it, you know what? It was worth it. And here we are recording a podcast. I've, somebody sent me somebody on Reddit who was complaining because three other podcasts had beaten us to talking about this. And it was like, all right, well, I got I got Rich, my main co-host, out in Memphis. I wrote 3,500 words and did a podcast with, uh, with Sam Vecini. I kind of had my day booked, but we are here. We will give you that Sixers talk. Which right now, even though it's Dallas Sunday, everybody in the area wants to talk about. It is – this team's going to be entertaining, man. No matter which way it goes, this team's going to be entertaining. And that's a great spot for us to be in. And I think it might be a good spot for the team to be in too. But we will get into that. Yeah, definitely. Um <clears throat> I think this – I was trying to think, like, is this the biggest trade in franchise history maybe? Um I mean – I guess I guess Moses Malone, the Moses Malone trade is bigger than this. But, yeah, he uh, was he was a little bit important. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but uh, since then, this, this might be it. To be fair, I was going to make a joke about your age, and then I realized I wasn't even a basketball fan at that time. It was, <laughs> it was too long ago for me. Um, yeah, I mean the Bynum trade, everybody freaked out about, but that's because we were so desperate. Like we were desperate for anything to make us relevant that we all lost our shit. In terms of turning the Sixers into a title contender, I mean, look, there just aren't many periods in this history where they're a real legitimate title contender. If this trade ends up being one of them, yeah, it's going to be one of the biggest trades in franchise history for sure. Um, we could argue that maybe some of the deals which got us to this point would also be a biggest trades in franchise history. But then you're getting yeah. into a Jim Adair level flow chart, and we don't need to do that on this podcast. You know, I think before we kind of get too far into it, because I think you and I tend to come from things at the same from the same angle in that it means, okay, well, what does this mean for the team going forward? What does this mean for contention? How do you make this work? And we're going to focus a lot on Jimmy Butler. We do have to kind of pour one out, though, for Robert Covington and Dario Saric. Um, they were both tremendous guys in that locker room, big parts of that locker room. They were both exceptionally hard workers. They both played their asses off. Both had their deficiencies, but they were very, very big parts of what Sixers basketball meant over the last few years. They both improved substantially over the last few years to get to the point where they could be centerpieces in a Jimmy Butler trade. And they were both pleasures to deal with from our perspective on the media. So it is tough, especially for those guys in that locker room. You know, Joel Embiid, I assume, is feeling it right now. And I I think he can probably be both excited about getting Butler and also, you know, reminisce about the time he spent with two people he probably considers pretty close friends. And I think that's a Always a big part of these transactions. I'm glad we had Rich out there in Memphis to kind of document that over at the Athletic Philadelphia. And we certainly don't want to sell that short. You know, like I said, I think everybody here respects both Covington and Charge and the work they put into their craft and the effort that they played with. And they are they are certainly losses in that locker room. 100%. Um, and, you know, you, you touched on it a little bit, but they were they were so great to deal with, with just in terms of, like, media stuff, like, Covington was always so happy to talk about like team strategies or, or just like the specifics of the game. Like he was always just a, a pleasure to deal with in that sense. And I think, I think Darius Arch is like the, the most genuine player that, that I've ever dealt with. And that obviously isn't the biggest list in the world, but like he, he tries so hard to give you a, a genuine answer to your question. Like he, it's, it's just amazing how much, how much he really cares and how, how sincere he is. Um, in terms of players, like, 
I mean, it's crazy that Covington, I think four years ago, either today or tomorrow, um, was the day that the Sixers signed him out of the G League. And four years later, he's the centerpiece of a Jimmy Butler trade. And that's just awesome. Like, you, you have to respect, uh, you know, his come up and, and, and the amount of work he put in. It, it really is incredible. Um, and I, I still am kind of amazed how little, like, how undervalued he was four years ago, but still. That that amount of hard work he's put in to get to this point is amazing, and and uh, I, I think now that he's gone, we can stop arguing about him, and we can hopefully all just just respect him and what he did, and and you know what he contributed to to the process. It amazes me that a guy like him becomes such a hot button debate, like a guy who went undrafted, turned himself into the league one of the league's best defenders. Because of the limitations of his offensive game and his streakiness inherent in shooting, the fact that that wasn't appreciated enough. You know, I was going to say in the beginning, like, you know, these are two fan favorites. And that's just 50% of that is just not true. Like, Robert Covington was not a fan favorite. He was in a certain segment, but he was not a fan favorite overall, and he should have been. And, you know, his legacy now is going to be helping the Sixers get Jimmy Butler. And... On the one hand, that's fair because, I mean, this is a star quality player, a two-way star that's very tough to get. On the other hand, he, his his own play and his own improvement and his story, I think, deserves some legacy as well. Um, you know, I, I will say I, I one of my good friends on the beat, Kevin Kincaid, recently put – you know, he's always argued that you got the people who hate Covington and then you've got the Covington supporters and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And, you know, I think if you look back, my initial take with Covington when I started – Basically saying he was underrated was no, he's a, he's a legit starter on a good team. And I don't, th- I don't think I ever like went overboard in terms of what he can do. I just sort of maintained, no, he's actually a legit starter on a good team. Not the six are a good team. He's a legit piece. And I think for him over the last couple of months to get that first team all defensive nomination to get that, you know, basically be the centerpiece of a trade for Jimmy freaking buckets. That sort of validates that maybe it is in the middle. But I think the people that were pro Covington were, were, it's closer to that side of the spectrum. And like I said, he's, he's the centerpiece of a trade for Jimmy Butler. Like that validates a lot of the value league wide on how other teams view him. And look, Minnesota is a very unique situation for a bunch of reasons we'll get into. Um, I mean, they're run by a coach who has to keep his job, who needs to remain competitive during this time. And who quite clearly values defense so highly. And oh, by the way, Jimmy Butler torpedoed his value so much over the last few weeks and months that this becomes a realistic option. But Robert Covington was always going to be a necessary part. You know, I, I kind of tweeted earlier today that, man, just thinking about a Covington, Butler, Simmons, and B defensive lineup is just absolutely incredible to think about. It would have been great to see. But there was never going to be a trade for a star player that didn't involve Robert Covington. And it's not because the Sixers had to move on from Robert Covington or had to upgrade Robert Covington, but because his – first of all, his insane value of his contract. I mean like we said I think in the last pod, Otto Porter is making $16 million more a year than Robert Covington. Like that's a, an incredible value of a, of a contract. And also he easily fits onto a lot of rotations with his shooting defensive versatility. He is going to miss Dario Saric when he's playing like he was last year is going to miss. I have some reservations. You know, I think like we said at the beginning of the season, I think penciling him in as a 36-37% three-point shooter is probably probably fair. I expect him to get up to that point, whether he does this year. Even this year, I think he probably will. Certainly for his career, I expect that level of a shooting. 
But as we've seen and touched on recently, when he's not making those shots, his limitations come into the, for, the up to the forefront. But he was a valuable piece of that team too. And I think, like I said, just take take a moment, recognize what those guys contributed, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Uh, those guys come back to Wells Fargo Center January 15th. Timberwolves come back. Everybody should give them standing ovation. You know what I want? Uh, they deserve it. I want somebody on the team, on the current Sixers, to intentionally foul Robert Covington in the act of shooting in the second half of the game. So he has to deal with the Wendy's promotion crowd. I think that would be that that would be that would that would be incredible. Um, I hope he hypes him up anyway. We'll I'm, see where his commitment truly lies. Whether he actually yeah. loves Frosties that much, I'm gonna guess he's gonna be quiet on this one. Um, but I think I mean Robert doesn't draw a whole lot of fouls, and that's one of the limitations that people will look on a lot in terms of his ball handling. But I, I really hope he gets fouled in the second half of that game. And I will say, take a moment. I saw a lot of yeah. You know, first of all. I'll get to that in a second. I saw a lot of takes of, oh, you know, now the process is over. And it's like, no. They traded a guy who was signed to, quote-unquote, help the team lose, to quote Deadspin. They traded a guy who was never coming over for Jimmy Butler. Like, it, it just, it's proof of how playing the margins can drastically impact the direction of a team. It's proof of why getting those small decisions and finding value where you wouldn't expect it is important. Dario Sharge was not a top draft pick. He was a 12th pick in the draft. Robert Covington was unsigned, who if the team had played veterans the way that some people wanted to, never would have been here, never would have developed, never would have had the opportunity to play through his growing pains. And to have those two develop over these last four years to the point where this trade is real, that's very much – I mean the way I kind of look at it, you've got you know, Arturis Gouditis and Luka Mitrovic, who was basically traded for the number one pick in the draft. And then you've got Robert Covington and Dario Sharch, who's traded for Jimmy Butler. The combination of those two things are essentially the Sixers version of the James Harden trade. And not that, not that the number one pick in the draft and Jimmy Butler is as good as James Harden, but it's their version of making enough small wins to get to the point where you can jump on an opportunity like this, an undervalued star. And again, not that Butler was as undervalued as James Harden or as much of a star as James Harden, although nobody knew that at the time, but this is the Sixers version of that trade to me. Yeah, I would agree. So fit with Jimmy Butler. How much do you like it? How much concern do you have? Where it is where does everything kind of fit for you? I think that Jimmy is is a great fit in terms of the fact that he fills their biggest needs, but there still are so many questions otherwise. Like even though they have such a lack of of perimeter creation um, and of, you know, Really, really good on-ball one-on-one defenders. Like Jimmy fills both of those needs really, really well, but there's still questions of, about you know the way the way he likes to score, the way he operates with the ball. Um, obviously, his general demeanor on the court. Um, but you know the main things that stood out to me were Jimmy really, really likes to operate in the mid post and the low post, and it's like like where are you putting Ben and Joel and Markel around him? And I don't think Markel will be around him, but that's another discussion. Um, I, I think you just really have to hope that Embiid's three-point shot gets to like a league average level um, because that's really necessary to make this thing work. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that, you know, he, he obviously makes this team a lot better. Like we can talk at length about 
limitations of the fit and how it's not perfect and how guys like Kawhi or Paul George would have been cleaner fits. But at the same time, Jimmy makes this team so much better. Like he, he really fills holes where they needed it the most. Um, and, and I think this, this trade puts them in the same tier as Boston and Toronto. Yeah, Butler's interesting. He's sort of like a combination of Robert Covington. Like if you took Robert Covington and you took what you thought you were getting out of Markel Fultz and combined him into the, in the, in a one sort of player, you know, a bigger, bulkier forward sort of player. He's sort of like that. He's going to operate a lot, like you said, in the mid post. He's going to run a lot of pick and roll. He has developed enough to where he can shoot a three off the pick and roll or he can get into the paint. He can look to find his teammates off of that, but he is going to dominate the ball a lot. And, you know, I think the fit with Joel is a little easier to see once we start seeing them run a lot of pick and roll. I think Joel can really benefit from that. You know, clearly there will be times when Butler is ISOed and you just don't know where to put put him be. Do you let him float out the three point line? Do you put him in that dunker spot? You just, you're going to have to figure that out. And that's something Embiid's never really had to deal with in the half court. So that's going to take some time, but I do think they can at least play off of each other a little bit in the pick and roll, which I mean, like I said, is something Embiid's never really had. Uh, and you're going to have defenses are going to be in a, a spot where they got to choose which one to take away. And that's going to be a hard, hard choice to make. So I think they can grow that. The bigger question to me is Ben Simmons and what you do with him. You know, they played a lot. They talked a lot about growing Ben off the ball as they look to develop Mark Hill Fultz. And they sort of went away from that. They actually played a little bit of it last night, but they sort of went away from that as Fultz struggled and as they minimized the time that those two were on the court. And they're just going to have to do a lot more of moving Ben off the ball, of screening for Ben off the ball, of trying to get him post-ups, of trying to get him you know, to where he's not stagnant and to where he can move enough to overcome his lack of gravity. That, to me, is a much bigger question mark. And on the one hand, I don't think that's a natural fit. But on the one hand, I don't think you could entirely avoid these types of players. You know, like I said, I think I think Jimmy Butler is here to sort of serve the role that they drafted Markel Fultz to be because they understand that Simmons has half-court limitations that are going to make it tough to really run late-game offense the way that you would at least want to have the option to run. They always needed sort of that, that off-the-dribble, pick-and-roll creator. So this is, to me, a growing pain you were always going to have to endure when building a team around Ben Simmons. You know, I think I think Simmons is going to get the ball. He's going to push it in transition. That's where his real elite skill comes in. And now he has to learn how to make himself a threat off the ball. Yeah, for sure. I, like, the thing the thing that you touched on a little bit was... Also, like, to be clear, uh, because I'm sure this is probably driving some people nuts that are, are going to listen to this because it's driving me nuts. That is a, a, a leaf blower in the background that we uh, have no control over. Is it really bad? <laughs> well, I can hear it. I can, I'll try to get it out in, in a little bit of editing, but I can definitely hear it. All right, yeah. I apologize. My neighbors are blowing their leaves. Um, but anyway, um, oh, yeah, you touched on a little bit, um, like, Jimmy being ball dominant, and, and that that's something you were always going to have to experience with Ben and, like, like those growing pains. Like, it, we we talked so much about adding this third star, well, any star, any third star is going to take the ball out of Ben's right. hands a lot. Unless and, it was like Clay Thompson. That was the only one right. who would have just been like the perfect, you don't even have to worry about it, drop him in and play fit. Right, right. But pretty much anybody else. I mean, you're going to have to, you're going to have to learn how to put Ben off the ball and, and kind of like just figure things out and experience those growing pains. <laughs> so it's worth it. It's worth it. 
you know, that that's one thing that I think has been a little bit overblown um, and that I think will be all right. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's, you know, there's a spectrum of needing the ball, right? I think someone like Paul George or Kawhi, they don't need the ball as much as Jimmy Butler did, and they would have been easier fits. They would have been something that you had to – it would have been less of an adjustment, and I agree with that. Those players weren't available. Paul George wasn't leaving Oklahoma City, Kawhi Leonard – or more specifically the Spurs, weren't trading Kawhi Leonard here for that package. So you make the best of, of the next situation. Um, and look, here's the thing. Yes, the reports are out there that the, that the Sixers will look to re-sign Jimmy Butler. They're confident it will happen. But if something happens where either the on-court fit isn't as expected or if Jimmy Butler's a problem in that locker room, you can renounce his rights, you can let him leave. If some, let, Okay, let, so let's say that the... Fit isn't right or there's a problem in the locker room and someone like Kawhi Leonard next summer says, I want to come and join Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. You know, let's say Joel Embiid just wins an MVP. Let's see the Sixers make it to an Eastern Conference Finals or a final. And Kawhi Leonard says, look, this is where I want to, you know, commit to the next four or five, four years of my career. Or even Clay Thompson says, this is where I want to commit. You could theoretically let Jimmy Butler walk and you would have like, $50 million to spend. You, It's not like the Sixers committed the salary right now. It's not like the Sixers. Sixers are actually in a better position to be players in free agency next summer. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, if if things go right and the Sixers make it to the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals, I think they're going to want to bring back that same group. Um, you don't see teams let star players walk after that. It would be very unorthodox and unprecedented. But there is still a world where they could do that if they wanted to. They haven't sacrificed that kind of flexibility next summer. Um, it's really the trade flexibility that you've sacrificed, but, um, you would have to dump faults, right? That would be the first thing to happen if you were going to resign Butler and get a second quality player. Right. So they would be sitting at like 19 to $20 million right now. Fultz has about a little over 9 million due to him next year. I think if you dumped everyone and just sat there with, um, you know, with Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid and... Jimmy Butler's cap hold, you would come out with something like maybe 35 million-ish in cap room. So over the 30% max, but under the 35% max. Yeah. But, I mean, moving basically Fultz alone and maybe one other, like, let's say, Zaire Smith-level player would get you to that 30% max. Yeah. Which could put you in the range of, like, a Chris Middleton type. Right. Um, Can we talk a little bit about Jimmy and Embiid? Go for it. Uh, first thing, first thing I think was interesting to think about is like Embiid having a mismatch partner to, to play with. Like if you're in, in a playoff series and, and teams are, are switching everything, yep. and you need someone, say say you're playing Toronto and you need they, they need to have Serge Ibaka on the floor to guard Embiid, and they have I guess Kawhi guarding uh, Jimmy Butler. You can just run pick and rolls and switch Kawhi onto Embiid and Ibaka onto Jimmy Butler and exploit those mismatches whichever way you want. And I think that's something that was was lacking. Like you you need someone on the perimeter to be able to exploit the mismatch that way. Um, and I think I think that'll really really benefit both of them. Um, the other thing that I think will be really interesting, um, I just I just think that Jimmy and Embiid are going to get along, and I think that they are going to form. And if they do, they're going to form this, like, this really, really interesting dynamic out there on the court. Like, these are two guys who are real, legitimate intimidators. Like, 
I would be terrified to play against those two. Um, they're going to be a menacing trash talk duo, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, on the court, I think they will – I actually – I think, the, like I said, I think the fit between Embiid and Simmons on the court is – Embiid and, and Butler on the court isn't as in question as I think some people – some people are worried about. It. I think it's much more Simmons, uh, personality-wise on the court. I do think they will get along as well. The question is always going to come with Butler. You know, how much do you worry about his personality? Um, you know, there's there's two things Jimmy Butler really loves. Jimmy Butler really loves working hard, and Jimmy Butler really loves talking about how much Jimmy Butler loves working hard, <laughs> and that can certainly grate on people. And that's happened in two stops now, and I think the Sixers work hard. I think they play hard. I think they play the right way, so I don't think that will be a problem. And Brett Brown is probably the right coach for this spot. Like, I think Brett has – you know, I think there's a lot of debate over Brett Brown and his basketball uh, rotations and his play calling and, and his system, and I think most of those are overblown, but, you know, people have questioned that. I think the one thing that's unquestioned that you cannot question – is that he has command of that locker room. And this will be his most important responsibility right now. This will be his biggest test. So I think you can make the case that six are the right spot for Jimmy Butler. My biggest concern is, is Jimmy Butler sort of a pain in the ass because of the situations he's been in, or is Jimmy Butler a pain in the ass because he's a pain in the ass? You know, a lot of people, is it is it, is it basically a variable or is it a constant? Some people will just always be unhappy or frustrated or have a chip on their shoulder. And that's part of what's made Jimmy Butler great, but it's also part of what's made him tough to deal with. And I think as long as they keep that in check, like I wrote in my article yesterday, as long as they keep Jimmy Butler's worst instincts at bay, as long as they're able to retain command of the locker room, I think this will work out in some form. I think they'll be able to make the talent work. Whether that means a NBA final, a championship, you know, you still have to get past the, uh, past the Golden State Warriors. And that's no small feat. And also Jimmy Butler has to remain a great player after the Warriors are disbanded. And that's – we'll talk about that. But with that next contract, that's one of the concerns. But I think this pairing will ultimately be successful as long as that off-the-court stuff is resolved. And, you know, I think one thing I'd say, Joel Embiid sort of has this outgoing, extroverted personality on social media and to the media, the traditional media. But internally, he's a little bit more of a sneaky introvert. Like he will sort of let other people lead to a degree. He will sort of move on his own a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll see like if somebody needs to get in somebody else's face, from what I understand, that's fallen more on JJ Redick than it is Simmons or Embiid. So is there a strong enough, you know, Embiid sort of has a force of personality. Like he is, he commands respect in that locker room because of the way he carries himself and because of the way he is able to dominate, but he's not sort of that in your face kind of leader. I just worry that Jimmy Butler might have the most – he might impose his personality the most, and I think that's what you want to try to avoid. I think that's sort of what happened in, in Minnesota is – I remember like that that first press conference when he first got traded, he was saying like this is this is Carl Anthony Towns' team. This is Andrew Wiggins' team. I'm just here to help. And I think what happened was like those two guys didn't step up and be leaders, like the in-your-face leaders that he wants – and that's when he kind of felt like that he had to do it himself, himself. Um, I don't know, like that, that could happen again. That could happen. And that's the one thing that, that does kind of concern me is 
if there is if there is this underlying tension between Embiid and Simmons that some people have tried to play up, and if if they really don't uh, communicate at the level they should, Jimmy's going to be the guy to step in and be like, "Yo, like, what are you guys doing? Like, this this is what needs to happen," and and he's going to get in both of their faces, and I don't know if that's going to go well. Um, again, this is all highly theoretical, but I'm just kind of imagining scenarios where. Jimmy could be a troublemaker, and I think that's one of them. You know, he's a, he's still a 24-year-old kid basically playing his third season. They need him to kind of step up and, and really be the, like I said, the most dominant personality in that locker room um, because I do think he can be the type to inspire people and, and to lift them up. They need, they, need, they, need that, they need the best version of Joel Embiid, the leader they can get at, at this young age. So no pressure, sure. no pressure, Joe. Um you did also, you also mentioned though, like, I think Brett Brown has a really good handle on that sort of thing. I think that having other quality guys in the locker room, like JJ or Amir Johnson, even TJ who's been there a while, like those kind of guys will help stabilize things to an extent. Yeah. And I mean, he's walking into a team that sort of has their culture and their locker room already defined and already set. Like he's not walking into a, an undefined group dynamic. So I think that should help as well. Um, you just, I mean, you can't watch what happened in Chicago and in Minnesota and not have some level of concern. We'll see. Like I said, we'll see if this is a constant or a variable in Jimmy Butler's personality. We'll, we'll really see that. We will. 100%. Um, okay. Before we continue, a quick word from DraftKings. Do you know what the best way to enjoy basketball season is? by putting your basketball knowledge to the test by competing in one-day fantasy basketball at DraftKings. The fantasy site where one bad day on draft night doesn't have to ruin your season. DraftKings is giving away over $400 million in prizes this season. To put that in perspective, that's even enough to cover the Warriors' luxury tax bill. No matter what your skill level is, there's a contest waiting for you at DraftKings. Drafting your team is simple. Just select eight players and stay under the $50,000 salary cap. The best part is you get to draft a new team every day and without any long-term commitment. There's no better way to turn your love of basketball into cash. To download the app, head on over to DraftKings.com now and use our code SIXERS to support the show and enter a free contest with your first deposit. And remember, there will be $400 million in total prizes up for grabs throughout the season. That's code SIXERS to play for free with your first deposit. Only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. <sighs> okay. What do you do with Markel Fultz? What does that mean for Markel Fultz? Let's, I guess let's start off there. Well, the first most immediate thing, I don't think there's any chance he still starts. No, Zero chance. Um, for now, like, you put him on the bench, let him run the second unit, back up Simmons. Um, and long term, it's even, it's even cloudier. Like, I, I, Unless that jump shot comes back really fast, I don't see how you don't trade him. Um, and, and that's, that is for a lot of reasons, right? Like the first is that e- even setting the jump shot aside, Markel is a 20 year old point guard and point guard, young point guards really don't enter, you know, their, their peak until 24, 25. And are you really going to sit around and let Markel develop? until Jimmy Butler's 33 and through Joel Embiid's some of his best years of his career. Like, I just don't think that's something you can do. And I think the best hope for the Sixers is that over the course of the next maybe three months, 
Um, he kind of shows some improvement and rebuilds his trade value a little bit. Maybe you trade him at the deadline. Uh, if, if his value is still at rock bottom by that point, you probably wait him out the rest of the season, hope he can rebuild some value towards the end of the season, and then you probably have to trade him in the offseason. Like, I, I mean, maybe you don't. Maybe that's not wise. If his value is, like I said, still at rock bottom, maybe you give him another offseason. But either way, there is just there's so few possibilities, so few potential worlds where Markel Fultz is the ideal player to have around this core for the next four or five years. And I really think it's likely that he gets moved. Yeah, I mean, look, even even the Washington version of Markel Fultz wouldn't have been an ideal fit next to Jimmy Butler. Right. And even if you get him back to that level, there is still concern over how those two will play off of each other. They they were are both they have both never really been completely comfortable or preferred an off ball running off screen catch and shoot game. Butler can do it; he's gotten better at it, but his preference is still to pound the rock and create for himself. And Mark Fultz has always. His preference has been pound a rock and create for himself. There was some level of concern regardless. You know, to me, the Jimmy Butler trade is sort of an acknowledgement that they're not 100% confident in Markel Fultz being the guy that they drafted and filling the role that they wanted. And like you said, that part of that is timeline too. Like Jimmy Butler is able to help them compete for a championship now, even if Markel Fultz's early career had started off normally, he would not be at that level yet. So part of it is, 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 like I said, competing now and realizing that with Joel Embiid, you're closer than maybe you expected. But part of it is also that, you know, like I said earlier, this is the role that they drafted Markel Fultz to fill. And if they had ultimate confidence in Markel Fultz getting back to that, I'm, you know, it, this is a much more difficult trade to make. And the fit is a huge, huge question mark. It's a huge, I mean, it's, Markel Fultz is a really, really bad off-ball player right now. Really bad. Like, can't stress that enough. Really bad. And like the, the worst. One of the worst fits you could put next to Ben Simmons right now. And the way you overcome that, first of all, by getting better. Um, but right now in the immediate short term, you overcome that by letting him push and transition and letting him attack the rim off pick and rolls. Well, now there's going to be almost no time where he's not on the court with at least one of Ben Simmons or Jimmy Butler. And when he's on the court with Ben Simmons, you know, he's not going to be, first of all, the spacing's not going to be there for him to really attack off the pick and roll as effectively as he otherwise could. And he's not going to get as many opportunities to push and transition because Ben's going to be doing a lot of that. And when he's on the court with Jimmy Butler, he's not going to get nearly the amount of pick and rolls because Jimmy Butler's going to be using a lot of those possessions. Your offense is going to be designed around Ben or Joel Embiid in the post, half-court offense, Joel Embiid in the post, or Jimmy Butler in the pick and roller in the mid-post himself. There's just not going to be as much opportunity for him to slide into his comfort zone and do the things that he is good at, or at least that he has potential in to offset right now what he can't do. So how do you put him not only in a spot where he's helping the team, but in a spot where he's in a position to succeed and build up his confidence? That's a real huge question mark to me right now. And I don't know how they navigate that. I don't know how you make that work unless Mark Fultz just makes astronomical improvements in his jump shot and in his catch and shoot shot. And with how far away it looks right now, maybe you can convince me that in two or three years, he will be back to where he can shoot confidently, consistently with no hesitation off the ball. 
But I don't know how you navigate until you get to that point. It's going to be – I'm not not saying trade him in part because I just don't think there's a market there for him. Like I've, I got people asking me like, hey, does Markel Fultz and the Miami pick for Bradley Beal work? No. It's going to take way more than that and there's going to be too many teams interested in Bradley Beal for that to work. I just – I don't know how you navigate the next 12 to 24 months if Markel Fultz doesn't make substantial and market improvement. Yeah, it's really tough because I think like I think you just sort of have to accept that you're the Sixers that you're gonna take a massive loss on this trade. Um, you kind of just have to get Markel out, and his value is very low right now, and you don't have the time to wait until his value gets back up if it ever will. Um, but yeah, it's so tough. Like I, the one trade I think somebody floated on Twitter that uh, that maybe could happen is. Send him to Phoenix for like Mikael Bridges, um, which would be funny, but I, I think that's like sort of the most you could get out of, for, for Fultz right now, if that. Um, and, and th- that would actually help fill a need for the Sixers. Imagine trading the number three pick and a Sacramento Kings pick just to get back that Lakers pick. Oh, <laughs> oh, you know, I, there, there's a part of me that says, okay, look, give him 10 minutes a game so you don't damage either his reputation or his confidence or his, impact on the team, do that for the rest of the year. And just, you know, because right now what Mark Fultz has to fix, it's not so much on the basketball court. And it is because confidence, doing that in game situations is a big thing. But, like, he needs to get confidence in that catch-and-shoot three-point. So maybe just live with killing his trade value on the whatever percentage chance he gets of fixing that up. I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't know. It would, it would be hard for me to sell too low on him. Like I said, just so you can keep him on the roster, keep him working in the gym and see if whatever chance there is of him getting that jumper back and him getting that confidence in that jumper back. I don't like everything about Marco Fultz. I don't know what the odds, I don't know how to forecast any of this, like anything. I will say he's looked better attacking the rim. You know, I always say, that Markel Fultz, there's some games where he looks really good attacking the rim and he'll try to dunk on Gortat. And then there's other games where he'll, you know, be worried about driving in on Kemba Walker. And by I always say that, I mean, you said that in your article, but I'm trying to steal your thunder because you did that to me. <laughs> it's true. I did. But he looked the other night. He looked more consistently confident and aggressive attacking the basket. And that's a huge deal for his development. And you could kind of sort of see glimpses of what he used to be. But that jump shot, I, I can't even remember the last time he took a three. He had that one game where he took like four or five threes, and I'm not sure he's taken one since then. The catch he hasn't and taken shoot, one six games, I yeah, think. The catch-and-shoot jumper from the corner is so unnatural and so hesitant. And the free throws that we've seen lately have just been almost last year at this time level bad. That I don't know how I like. Like I said, I have no idea how to forecast this. I don't know. If, if, Maybe if, the best if, you, thing... if you bury him on the bench, does that kills confidence, like for the foreseeable future. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Which, by by the way, that's a real possibility because Brett clearly trusts TJ more than him right now. And when it gets to the playoffs, and you know everything, every second matters. Brett might want to go with TJ over him, and I I can't say that I would blame him that much. Um, but I think maybe the as, as I'm just kind of thinking out loud, maybe the best thing to do with Markel is 
wait until next year to make a move and just really hope that next offseason is a sort of a turning point for him and that he can rebuild his value through that. I, I, I guess, I guess my thinking there is just that you don't want to, you don't want to punt on this offseason for faults and you just want to hope that that's, that that is when he regains his shot to a, to a reliable level. And, uh, if he doesn't, then maybe that's when you cut your losses. No, I mean, there, there's definitely a part of me and I would probably lean, you know, people always say, you know, you don't trade Markel because he's at his lowest value. That's not always the case. We said that about Okafor for, oh, you can't trade Okafor now. His value is at the lowest it'll ever be. Well, no, it's not. It kept going down for the next year <laughs> and a half to two years to the point where you had to give a pick. Not that you had to give a pick because they, they actually wanted Trevor Booker, which is a different argument about whether they should have wanted Trevor Booker. But, you know, they gave that pick for Trevor Booker. But to the point where you couldn't get anything, literally anything of value for Jaleel Okafor. So value is almost never actually at its lowest point. It's just so low that you're depressed about how low it's gotten. And I'm not sure if, you know, I don't think Markel Fultz's value is at the lowest it could be, but I think I'm probably willing to risk it going lower on the chance to see what another off season of development looks like for that shot. But it is, there is certainly, let's say you bring up the Michael Bridges possibility. And I don't know if that is a possibility, but we'll say it is. There is certainly a chance that you can't get Mike, Michael Bridges for him next summer. That, that is abs, or, or at the trade deadline in, you know, 2020. That is absolutely a possibility. And I think I'm willing to risk that, but it is, this is not the ideal environment for him to grow in. Yeah. Um, I have, this is not like a, uh, a scoop or anything like that, but just in like talking to people like sort of around the league, um, I have heard someone say that they would not trade, uh, Markel Fultz for Terrence Ross. You might get bought out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, know. Uh, it, it, I it's mean, his, his trade it's value is, yeah, his trade value is not what I think a lot of people expect or hope it to be. I mean, it, people have asked, well, why didn't they include him in this trade? And again, this isn't a scoop. I don't, I don't know for sure. I can't imagine that Tom Thibodeau wanted Mark Hill Foles. Like people, you know, I've heard like, well, include him instead of Cove. I don't think there was any way that was on the table. I don't think, you know, Tom Thibodeau wants a, tr- a win now package. There isn't a win now package the Sixers can offer realistically, you know, obviously not including Simmons or Embiid, but there isn't a win now package the Sixers can offer that didn't include Robert Covington. And then a guy like Thibodeau who his job security is not there, who wants to win and make the playoffs this year. I don't think Markel Fultz has that kind of value that a lot of people think or hoped it, he did. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, could you have maybe included him instead of Jared Bayless? Yeah, that you could have done, but who would have wanted to do that? Not Tibbs. No. Definitely not Tibbs. I, I can't imagine a world where Tibbs would want to take on the Markel Fultz project. So, starting lineup, we both agree that Markel can't be in it, or at least shouldn't be in it. Where do you go for the other two spots? Because you traded two starters, and also you have another starter spot who is very much a bad fit. So where do you go? So it's, I mean, obviously you're going to start Simmons and Bede, Butler, Reddick, and the next two options are, I guess, Wilson Chandler or Landry Shamit. Um, God, neither sounds great. Uh, I would probably. I would say the I other prob- one people have thrown out there is um, Mike Muscala when he comes back. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
which God. seems like a sneaky way Brett could go because he really likes having, you know, a stretch and a face up four more than he likes having yeah. a small ball player on there, which I don't agree with. Um, but that seems like a legitimate way he could end up going. Yeah. But I'm asking what you would um, do, not what you think Brett will do. Right. Okay. I probably would go, I would probably start Wilson Chandler and then I would bring like, uh, bring Shamit and Mascala in. Um, maybe they're my first subs. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the reason you, you the reason I would want to keep Shamit on the bench is to have kind of like that on the move shooter on the floor at all times. Um, like that, that is a really big structure in the Sixers offense. And I think it's important that they have somebody that can do that. And Shamit and Reddick are those two guys. And if you start them together, you're going to go stretches of games where, uh, you have no one like that on the floor. So I don't know. Like I said, I think, I think it would be, I think I would start Chandler and I think Mascala and Shamit would be my first subs. See, I think, I think I would probably go Shamit and Reddick. And just stagger them so much that you can try as hard as you can to keep them both on the, one of them on the court at the same time. They do become almost indispensable in how they fit and in their skill sets and how much that's needed. So I see where you're coming from there. I, first of all, I think, I think right now Brett's not going to start Chandler just because he's on a minutes restriction, but even going forward, I would probably just lean so heavily towards shooting and hope that I can stagger them enough. But it is, you're probably going to have a little bit there in the late first quarter where you're going to end up having neither of them on the court. And that is a, and, and late third quarter then. Uh, and that is a, a definite concern. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, the other kind of question is like, if you, if you're playing, say, the Celtics in a playoff series and you have, your starting lineup has both JJ and Landry Shaman. Yeah, it's not great. Those, uh, not great. those agreed. two guys are going to get targeted. Um, that's maybe another reason you want to stagger them, but, and not that Wilson Chandler is a, a lockdown defender by any stretch, but he's, I think at a certain point, you have to be just like not a liability, not be the guy that is going to get targeted. And, and he certainly is not that. So it's tough. There's really, there's really no great option. Um, maybe there's another trade coming. So yeah, we'll see. And the buyout market could be interesting. You know, they have the, um, the room level. Room mid-level exception to work with. They also have a trade exception of about 2.5 mil that they got in this trade. So they have some flexibility in trades and in signings when those cuts do inevitably happen. It will be, I mean, they have less depth now. That is undeniable. Um, I mean, Butler uh, or Covington and Charge, you know, combined for 60 odd minutes. Even Jimmy Butler. Can't play 60 minutes. And Tom Thibodeau <laughs> tried. He tried to make that happen. Tries hard. But you can't, you can't do that. Um, so they have, they have some ground to cover. And whoo, boy, if there's an injury, whoo, boy. Whew. Yeah. Any of them, any Simmons and Bede, Reddick, Butler, even you throw freaking Landry Shamit in there now. They do not have the depth to withstand an injury. That is a very legitimate concern. They're going to, I mean, this is a trade they're making, you know, first of all, Again, some people have, have wondered, well, why didn't you just target Jimmy Butler in free agency next summer? And Jimmy Butler's been pretty clear that he wants that five mil, or five year, $190 million contract that only a team with bird rights can, can offer. So as long as he got traded to a team that was going to be willing to offer him that, he's not moving in the summer. So you 
you acquired him for those bird rights because you know that the odds of luring him away and changing teams next summer was low. He wants that. He wants that contract. He wants that quote unquote respect, which whenever people don't want to admit that they want that contract, they, they phrase that in that way. And also you want four months here to see what Jimmy Butler is like on your roster, in your rotations, with your personnel, and maybe most importantly in your locker room. So that's why you make this trade now rather than wait. And it's, it's, they are that this trade is like, they're trying to win, like not just win 50 games and make the second round of the playoffs. They're trying to win. And that impacts the Markel Fultz playing time that we talked about earlier. And that also impacts how aggressive they're going to be in trying to round out some of the depth that they've lost because they knew they do. If, if the goal now is to make the NBA finals and look, you can make an argument that in terms of top end talent, nobody in the East matches the Sixers. Boston's a little tough because Gordon Hayward's so much of a shell of what he was and does he get back to that level by the time the playoffs roll around and all that. But in terms of top-end talent and top-end depth, the Sixers are in a unique spot in the East. They Right now, I'm not sure they have the depth to beat Boston in a playoff series. So I think that's really what they got. they have to address, and I think that is going to be a priority, I do. Yeah, I I think that... Like if you if you could get a guy like Damari Carroll even yep. like if you could get him on the buyout market I think he starts on this team um, he'd be a huge addition someone like him even like Justin Holiday would be a big help um, obviously Trevor Reza would be great but like guys like Damari Carroll Justin Holiday would be huge for this team I wonder I wonder if Reza if he gets bought out which is fascinating to me because he's a, a a a good player and B they gave him all that money in the in the summer and I don't I still don't I think know he why. Is, I think he gets traded. I, don't, I think there's going to be too big of a market for him. Well, I was going to say if the, he gets this, if he gets bought out, does he just go back to Houston? Oh, true. That's that's also a possibility. Wouldn't it be funny if they end up waving Carmelo and then getting Ariza back on the buyout market? <laughs> Talk about going full circle. Um, yeah, I would. All right. Anything else you want to kind of get to? We'll have plenty. Uh, Butler not yeah. likely to play until Wednesday, so we'll have plenty of time to. Talk about his first game and initial impressions, but yeah. By the way, wasn't uh wasn't last night's game kind of fun to watch? It was like it was, it was like, it was like a couple it. years ago. Yeah. Exactly, it's no like expectations. A couple years just... ago, but throw Joel Embiid in the mix as a dominant force. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're just like, hey, let me let me see what Furkan Korkmaz can do. <laughs> that was like the whole gist of the game. Hey, all that mattered. That dude might get run right now. They're so shallow. Yeah, he might. He might. All right, sounds good. Thank you for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. All right, no problem.